Yes, welcome back to How Did I Get Here? This is, of course, the show where we ask the question, well, how did you get here? We had a writer on a few weeks ago, Brooke Dunnell, and it was a great chat. So today we're talking to another writer based out of Perth. Holden Shepard is the award-winning author of Invisible Boys and The Brink, uh, two massive young adult novels on the scene right now, and he's our guest today on How Did I Get Here? Holden, thank you so much for joining me. G'day, Charlie. Thank you very much for having me, mate. Appreciate it. Let's jump right into the start. You know, when does writing first enter your life? Uh, I've been writing since I was a little kid. I started mm. writing books when I was seven years old. So seven. I, yeah, I was uh, I was uh, writing a lot of Enid Blyton ripoff fan fiction <laughs> kind of stuff. So um, all those boarding school stories, and um, there was you know Mallory Towers and those things. So I used to write stories about uh, boys in the you know in the nineteen nineties back when I was growing up. Um, you know, going to these boarding schools and having these adventures and falling off cliffs and, you know, it was not, it was not great writing, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it was the beginning and I was, I was dead set at that age. I was going to get published. Like I was, I was keen. This was my career. Right, yeah. I've got it written in these little exercise books in blue pen. You know, this will be published. It'll be sold in target. It'll cost $2.75. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was dead serious from an early age and I've pursued it basically my whole life. Um, I, I thought it'd be writing at seven, published at eight, you know, it took me until I was right. 30, about 30, <laughs> 30, 31, I think when Invisible Boys finally came out. Um, so it was took a little bit longer than I thought, but that 23 year apprenticeship was a pretty solid one. Do you remember the first time you ever showed somebody your writing? Uh, I do. Um, mm. I used to keep it really secret up until a certain point. Yeah. So I haven't had mates at school try to like, take the exercise books to have a little peek at what I was doing. And I physically ripped one in half once because my mates were, were yanking it off me. And I was like, I am not ready to share this. So I tore it in half trying to protect it. Um, I didn't want anyone to know. But then probably when I was about 13, I started writing Pokemon fanfic and I used to post it on on these online forums. And I had all these readers from <laughs> um, America. And you know, it was the first time people were reading my stuff. And suddenly all these people were saying, this is really good. What's, what happens in the next chapter? And you know, you're a good wow. writer. And I was getting these little, you know, little bits of readership and it was quite thrilling to be 13 and, and to having, you know, older teenagers and adults reading your work and telling you you're a good writer. That was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at, you know, your early life, who are your authorial heroes? What, whose writing did you look up to? Um, when I was a teenager, it was really heavily like John Marsden. I loved, mm. you know, Tomorrow When the War Began, um, those books. Um, and you know, obviously Harry Potter, I grew up with those as a teenager. Um, I remember going to a mate's 15th birthday party and literally five of us, seven boys, like finished the sleepover, you know, it's like, okay, time to go to bed and everyone opened, you know, Harry Potter book. Um, so it was just that era. Um, <laughs> we grew up with that cool kind of YA, um, surge, but yeah, John Marsden was a big role model for me and an and inspiration. Hmm. You know, looking at uh, the way you were brought up, you grew up in Geraldton here in WA, which for anyone listening is on the mid Midwest coast up here. Uh, what was that regional upbringing like for you? It was pretty chill. Well, I've been a country boy. Um, yeah. Grew up in Geraldton, kind of, it's like this weird middle place. So you're not like a city kid, but uh, we weren't farm kids either. So we're just kind of, you know, country trash, but, but, you know, with no farm skills to help us out. Um, so it was a really good time. I, I enjoyed it. You're, you're, you're driving past the beach every day. It's this beautiful beach and there's no one on it. You know, like, mm. uh, you have this really happy idyllic kind of growing up. Um, and I love that kind of, I don't know, country, 
the country vibe is just <laughs> once you reach teenage years, especially, you know, just hanging out with mates all the time and walking around town because there's nothing to do or going to house parties because there's nothing to do. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's great. You just spend your life at the beach or uh, um, chilling at mates' houses. Um, so I loved it. Um, but it's not, you know, it's definitely not the kind of place you grow up uh, expecting uh, to make it as a, as an author, as a novelist, yeah. you know, I didn't, I definitely didn't see anyone around me who was in the arts at all, let alone writing. Uh, so I used to, I remember just laying on the trampoline out in the backyard. We had like this half acre and I just kind of lay on the trampoline, look at the sky and think like, okay, cool. Like, how do I get out of here? <laughs> like, like mm -hmm. I loved it and I still love Jero, but it was like, I, how do I go from being this country boy to being what I want, which is this acclaimed best-selling novelist. Mm, yeah. Uh, I know a lot of your writing stroke focuses on the struggles of being gay as a young person. You know, is that something that you experienced growing up in Geraldton? It was, yeah. It was a big part of my life from, uh, from you know, 14 to 19 kind of thing. You know, you're struggling with who you are and, and trying to work out your place in the world. And, and there were certainly some really dark times in the older teen years um, yeah. that, that made it really hard. Um, especially, you know, if you, if you throw in a few other factors, if you're in the country, but then, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic, I'm half Italian. So there's a lot of traditional right, yeah. kind of Sicilian yeah. family expectation. And then, um, you know, I grew up in uh, a very working class kind of blue collar background. So my dad uh, ran an earth moving business. Um, me and my brothers were laborers with him kind of, you know, digging trenches and operating mini excavators from a young age and that kind of thing. So that kind of world is not really, um, you know, it doesn't really fit with what you expect a gay man to be. So I, I had a difficult time working myself out, but, uh, but thankfully, uh, you know, I reached out to services when I was younger and they, they helped me out a lot kind of anonymously and I, I got through it all and came out the other side and, uh, married now with a husband, we've been together 15 years. So, um, it was, it, it ended up good. It got better. Um, and then obviously I've used that to kind of write about in my own work as well. Hmm. Now here at Student Edge, of course, we love hearing about what people were like as students, their student lives. You know, how would you describe yourself as a student in high school? I um, I often surprise people when I tell them I was like a straight A student and I was really, right, yeah. I was like a really well-behaved, painfully perfectionistic, like good, good kid. Like I was an honest student. I kind of, I was on the, whatever it is, the 400 club at the high school. So like whatever you used to be. It used to not be called an ATAR. It used to be called, I think, a TER or a TES. Yeah, entrance, tertiary entrance score. And if you got above 400, it was like super prestige. And mine was 400 and something. So I remember getting <laughs> on this little, I was on this little honors board and they had a little, you know, cup of tea and cake. And like my parents came and they're like, here he is on the honor board. <laughs> um, um, but no, that was me. I was just really, um, I was very, very bookish kid. Like I, I loved mm. reading. I loved libraries. I loved all of that stuff from a young age. Um, I was not a very good student in terms of, um, I would leave everything to the last minute and I was very, I don't want to say lazy, but I was, <laughs> um, you know, it kind of continued from high school into uni, you know, if you have an assessment and it's worth 50% of your grade, I would wait until the night before. And then I'd grab like a bag of marshmallows and a block of chocolate and like heaps of coffee and just like pull an all nighter and smash it. That's kind of the mm. kind of student I was. So probably not a role model student, but it got the, <laughs> you know, it, it got the results. So I, I, you know, yeah. it has something going for it. Right. You know, did you have like a, a favorite and least favorite subject? Um, favorite would have been English for sure. Yeah, I, I used yeah, to get that the, makes sense. the English prize. Yeah, I used to love English <laughs> and history. Um, mm. Least favorite. Um, I was good at maths, but I didn't like it. 
And yeah. and once it got to like calculus and stuff like that, I remember just being like, I don't get what we're doing anymore, and I, I don't know why we're doing it. So um, I start to hate it. So yeah, maths. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned there you, you did a bit of earth moving with your family. Was that the first ever job that you undertook? Uh, well, technically, yeah, because um, yeah. I was I would do like little bits helping dad um, just dig sand, you know, with a shovel or you know, like I'd learned how to go on the excavator when I was about eight, which I'm sure is probably not, right. su- yeah. not super safe. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, dad would teach us stuff and how to pick it up. So that was the first little bits of stuff I did. But my first actual job i worked as a laborer for dad later when i was a bit older as a team but my first paid job was as a storeman for uh super value central a supermarket right. on the main street of Drilton. um and i was a, a trolley boy and a you know uh, i yeah load the stock and clean the warehouse and sweep and that was <laughs> that was my job you know, <laughs> three hours after school each day I <laughs> love it. Now, I know that you actually left home at a very young age. You know, you mentioned before you were dreaming of, of going somewhere else. And so you leave home and pursue that passion for writing. You know, how did that decision come about for you? Yeah, it was, um, I really wanted to go to uni. I really wanted mm. to get out of my hometown and get to the city. And I don't know what I was looking for, but I knew I was just, I didn't want to get out. I actually nearly chose science at one point because uh, I had a lot of people around me. If you come from that kind of uh, blue collar background and you say you want to be an artist, um, you know, most of the people <laughs> around me were kind of like, that's never going to make any money and you'll never make it. And, um, you know, I was told if, you know, if you're book smart and you've got good grades, you should be becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. And if you're not doing that, you're being wasteful of your talents. Um, so I had a lot of that going around. So I nearly did science, thankfully ended up still choosing writing. Um, actually I chose history. I chose history first cause that sounded right. <laughs> There's no jobs in history either, but, um, but I, <laughs> but, uh, I, for some reason that sounded like slightly more serious than creative writing. So mm-hmm. I did it for three weeks and then realized very quickly, this is not fun. It's not what I want to do. I want to be an artist. So, uh, let's give it a crack. And I think I, at the time I remember having this sense of fortune favors the bold, you know, like if, and that kind of became a motto for me that okay, just because, you know, X percent of, you know, only 2% of people who want to be a writer, you know, maybe actually make it and have a really great career, whatever the stat might be. Um, I was like, well, why can't I be one of the 2%? Why can't that be me? I I don't want to be the 98. I want to be the two. Um, So I just kind of persevered with it and thought that's what's going to happen. I'm going to be really bold and really push myself. And I'm going to find a way to be one of the people who actually does make this career work. Hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, breaking into that that 2%, making a career as a writer, it's no easy feat. What was your, you know, at that young age, what was your plan? How are you going to attack it? That's a great question because I don't think I actually had one. I I think (laughs) I was, I think my my motto was, you know, okay, fortune favors the bold. And then I was hoping for the the fortune part, the luck part to just kind of carry me the rest of the way. Um, And and you know what? It doesn't work. You you can't rely um, solely on luck. I, I, um, it, it, you need part of it, you know, a part of a creative career is actually luck and timing. And, you know, if I'd written Invisible Boys 10 years before or 10 years later, it might not have been the right time and it might never have gotten published. Um, so luck is important, but it's not enough. Uh, so I remember graduating, uh, you know, every time I'd graduate, <laughs> every time I graduate from something I did, you know, my three year bachelor's and I graduate and I was like, oh, well, I don't have a, I don't have a degree to go to. I don't have a tutorial to go to today. Um, 
I, okay, well, I guess I'll just get a job, you know? So I, I would, yeah. I would finish a degree. I worked full time in a bank for a year right? and then yeah. kind of went, hang on, what am I doing? Went back and did my honors year over two years, graduated honors and went, oh, no tutorials anymore. Uh, better go, better go work at a university. So I worked at a university for, for a couple of years and they were, they were not good decisions, but when you come from a background where you're expected to work and work is the value of someone, it, it's very easy to, you can push yourself to do a degree because there's structure around it and there is uh, validation around it. Right. So if you, if you're, you know, I was a, like at high school at uni, I was a straight HD student, except for one, one, one single mark of my 24 units. I got, I, I got, <laughs> oh, one, no. I got one distinction and it was 79. If I had got oh. 80, if I got 80, it would have been straight HDs all the way through. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still so bitter about it. It's not even funny. Um, but you know, like when you, while you're at uni and while you're doing that, you, you're getting these little hits of dopamine that's saying, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm achieving something. I'm doing something mm. worthwhile because you've got academic validation. The moment you leave uni, you don't have anything. It's, it's like doing homework for the rest of your life with no pay. So it's a very easy to default to either I'll study more or I'll get a job. And so I kept doing that a couple of times until I eventually worked out like, dude, you're going to have to sit down and write a book mm. on your own. And that's the only way you're ever going to make this career work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can really say, you know, put the uni experience in a nutshell better than that. Uh, so we'll look at now a little bit of your writing. You know, you mentioned that you did study writing there at uni. Do you remember the first ever published piece? I do. Um, it was actually a piece yeah. I did at uni. Um, after my after my first year of uni, I came back home to Jero, did a bit of labouring with dad, and I kind of said to my family at the time, I was like, I don't, you know, I don't fit in at uni. It's I'm not liking it. Um, I'm going to quit. I'm going to come back home, be a labourer, and I'll just write wow. books on the side. That was actually I kind of gave up after my first year, um, and then I <laughs> then I worked as a labourer for three months and went, yeah, this is really this is really bloody hard. Um, and so I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to give it a bash because I really did have this dream. I, you know, I wanted to be a writer. Let me see if I can make it work. And so I went back to uni and that, that very first semester in 2008, so it was my second year, um, we had to write a short story for one of the units. And I, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about what I know for once instead of trying to write something that is kind of meaningful or symbolic or whatever. Uh, we'll just write what I know, which is uh, a bloke going to work as a labourer. So I wrote a book mm. called A Man, and uh, it was about this dude who's decided to be a labourer and he stays in Geraldton. Um, and my lecturer kind of marked it, you know, HD, yay, well done. But she kind of had this note of like, this is actually good enough. Like you should actually send this somewhere because it, it's actually good enough to probably get a run somewhere. And, uh, it, and it did. So I sent it to Indigo Journal, which was a big uh, journal in WA at the time. And it was picked up. I was 20 and I was starry eyed, you know, I was, I think I got paid 150 bucks or something for it. Like it was, you know, pretty minimal payment, but it was, it was the first paid, it was the first paid piece of writing ever. It was the first time I got published in a journal that people actually paid attention to. And they had me along uh, for the launch of it in early 2009. And they said, look, we want you to read it. So it was like the first time I went to this, audience of 200 people and it's, you know, Perth's literary community. And I'm this random bogan from Geraldton standing up at this lectern and, and reading this thing about a labourer. Um, but it was awesome. And it felt like, oh, like the, it was like the universe giving me the very first taste of like, here's a little, here's a little nugget 
to prove that if you try hard enough, you might make it. Mm. Yeah, so does that kind of, you know, seeing that piece get up and that first publication, does that tell you this is something I can do professionally? It did, and it, and it gave me hope for a lot of years. Um, yeah. Although there was, initial, there was an initial sense that um, I thought, okay, here it goes. Like, like right now, everything I send out from now on is mm. going to get published and it's going to build and build and build. And, you know, the very next things I sent out all got rejected. And um, that continued for about four or five, six years. Um, no one published me. I got some journalism published. You know, I wrote a few op-eds that got published in different places, magazines and um, the ABC. Um, but no one was publishing my short stories and that's hard. Um, so I always kind of say to, to new writers that they're very, you know, if you get one thing and that's your very first thing, hang on to that because that might have to sustain you for, for a year or five years or 10 years until you get your next publication. Sometimes, you know, it's not always easy. Um, and and that certainly was the case. I just took that first one as like this little beacon of hope. You've done it once. It means you can do it again. Keep writing. Hmm. Well, I've heard authors before talk about the the thrill of the byline, uh, seeing your name written below a a published title for the first time. Is that something you experienced? Oh, totally. Yeah. The first time you see it anywhere, especially in print though, there's something special about it. You know, it's great when you see it on the screen or, you know, a lot of those op-eds I did ended up online. Um, I think I wrote for the drum at one point on the ABC. Um, and that was cool. It was like, wow, that's me. But it, it's so special when it's printed, when it's like this. And it's special if you're a creative writer, it's special when it's a creative piece and you wrote this story yeah. and you get this thing in the mail and it's like, ah, oh, here I am in a book. That's what I've always wanted. So yeah, the thrill of the byline is a real thing and it's a good little kick. <laughs> uh, so looking at Invisible Boys now, this was the book that really kind of kickstarted your career and it was really popular all across Australia. Uh, can you tell me about how this one came about? Yeah, Invisible Boys, uh, funnily enough, was a mistake. Uh, I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm outlining a career based on mistakes and missteps, really, but, but, <laughs> um, but that's what it's been like for me. Um, and probably, to be honest, for a lot of our writers, it's not a kind of, it's not a linear progression. It's this weird looping crossover thing. Um, it takes a lot of years. But yeah, so Invisible Boys, uh, was an accident. I had spent uh, from 2014 to 2016, I, I was writing a, a fantasy novel and it was uh, kind of maybe a young adult version of Matthew Riley kind of books. So like high octane action thriller. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I thought it would get published. I thought it would be a bestseller. Um, that's what I thought was in store for me. And uh, I spent a lot of time on that. But then when it finally came out to pitching it to agents, uh, sadly, no one was keen on it. And the feedback from agents was it's okay. Or, um, your writing is competent, but it doesn't really stand out. You know, no one's going to pick this book up off a bookshelf in a shop. Um, and that really, really hurt. So I kind of, I I had to throw that book away. It was very, very hard. It was probably, it was probably the second lowest point of my career. You know, I just kind of sat there thinking I've, I've spent three years hustling and, and working so hard on this book. I thought I'd get published. Now I'm not. And it is brutal to have to be there, you know, in the fetal position on the couch, mourning your book and then realize that the only way to continue is to start again from scratch. You know, you have to start again from the very bottom and work it all again. Um, But that's what I did. So I had this, I had this little plan of releasing a few short stories as eBooks. And I was like, I'm going to do four short stories and just let people know that I'm a writer and then I'll work on a proper book. And then when it got to the fourth one, I started writing this little short story. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm going to write about 
growing up gay in Geraldton. And the intention was to write a, a full length book about an adult man like myself at that age, I was 28 or whatever. And I thought I'm going to write a book about that. Before I do, let me just dip my toe in the water. I'll write a little short story about this character when he's 16 and started writing it. And it just kept going. It, uh, mm. it was meant to be a short story and it ended up ballooning out, um, to this hundred thousand word long thing, uh, called damage control at the time. And then, uh, I renamed it invisible boys. And I kind of sat there and went, uh, like, I felt really good about it. It just came roaring out of me in two months, this whole manuscript. And it was raw and honest. And it felt, it felt to me like maybe it would have a chance. And, uh, you know, my husband read it and he was like, this is really good. Like, I think you should send it around. Um, and so that's what I did. I started sending it around and eventually it won the Hungerford Award with Fremantle Press. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is they give you 12 grand cash prize, which is awesome when you're a povo artist, you know, struggling to make ends meet. You, you know, you, you, I mean, you really want the publishing contract, which is part of the prize, but you love the cash as well. Um, so yeah, g- gave me a little cash prize, gave me a contract and and then, you know, it all started to take off. Obviously it got published and it, and it found an audience and it, it became an Aussie bestseller, which is huge. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the book thematically, it covers things like identity and sexuality and, and, you know, that sexuality, that identity being questioned. So do you see the book as autobiographical in any way? Uh, massively. Yeah. I, I the, the funny yeah. thing is, um, a lot of, a lot of artists don't like, like, they'll be like, Oh, you, you know, the book is made up and it's fictional and it's not me. Um, me, I'm very different. <laughs> I, um, I, I just kind of acknowledge that, yeah, this is drawn from my life. You know, this is, they're three made up characters. The events in the book are fictional. It is a novel. Um, but the emotional truth of each of these boys, uh, you know, Zeke, Charlie and Hammer, they're all struggling with stuff that I struggled with. So the stuff that their deepest fears and their insecurities, it's pretty much me on the page. there saying, this is how it felt. Um, so hugely autobiographical, but still technically fiction. Now, speaking of identity, something that I noticed again and again in my research was your adherence to the mohawk. Uh, where, where does this interesting hair choice come from? <laughs> um, I don't know if I have a great answer. Um, yeah. I, I've just, I've had a mohawk for most of my adult life since I was 21. Um, wow. I, I... If I'm to be like philosophical about it and analytical about it, um, I was pretty shy and beige and insecure for the earlier part of my life. Like when I was that good boy, you know, achieving a mm. high school and achieving at uni, I was not really myself. I was this really good perfectionistic persona and I was just generic. And at some point I kind of started writing and started being myself and I came out and yeah, it just kind of felt like, yeah, cool. Yeah, let the, let the punk inside me kind of show. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just, it's always been what I've gravitated to. I've had a mohawk since yeah, yeah. 2009 or whatever it was, um, on and off. Occasionally I get bored of it and I shave it off or I, you know, right, dye, yeah. or I dye it red or blue or green or make Liberty spikes out of it or something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, no, it's just, I think it's just a, a liberation thing of like, I'm here and don't mess with me. And I don't know, it feels good, but you know, that's me reading into it on a day-to-day level. I'm just kind of like, yeah, I like having a mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fair. You know, we'll, we'll take a step back from that little side journey there, um, back into invisible boys, as you mentioned, you know, you, you win the Hungerford prize for this, which comes with a publishing contract and eventually invisible boys has turned into the novel that it is today. Uh, can you tell me about the first time you received a physical copy of your book? 
I can. I remember it really well. I came back from uh, my honeymoon, actually. So I, um, oh. my husband and I got married um, April 2019, um, and then we went on a honeymoon uh, to uh, Italy and France, and it was awesome. So had this really great kind of trip away, uh, and then came back and uh, my friend uh, Jess Gately, who happened to work at Fremantle Press uh, in their sales team or marketing, something like that, she was doing some casual work with them. Um, and she lived up my way north of Perth. So they'd given her the book so I could pick it up on my way through from the airport. So I've literally like come through back home uh, <laughs> from, from this honeymoon, gone to uh, my mate's house and unwrapped this book for the first time. And it was like, it, it was like seeing your baby. It, it, like it was just this surreal moment. I was so happy to see it for the first time. And I literally, like, I took it around like, um, you know, like when a little kid gets like a Christmas present and like <laughs> takes it around the house everywhere for like the first few days. It was like that. I was like, just like, if I went to my office, I would just like put invisible boards next to me. Uh, when I go to bed at night, that first night, I literally was like, I'm just going to take this with me and put it next to me on the bedside table. I just like, just carried it around. Um, it was incredibly special. And I think, it, and maybe that sounds childlike, but I, I had a childlike beginning, you know, like I, I, I was seven and it was like this little boy's dream of like, I will be a published novelist. And then sure, you're, you're kind of big, dirty 31 year old, but it's still the same feeling of like, oh, I finally made it. Like I finally achieved my little dream. So um, hmm. it was incredibly special to, to see it and hold it for the first time. What's the post-release period been like for you? I know the book is immensely popular across the whole country, uh, but for you as, as the writer, how have you seen the success of the book? Uh, yeah, look, it blew me away. Um, I didn't know what to expect. It's my first time, or it was my first time uh, with a book with Invisible Boys. Um, I I didn't expect so many responses, like as in people emailing me, like fan mail or um, sliding into my DMs or whatever, to kind of say like, hey, I read this and I grew up in a town just like Geraldton, but in Victoria or Queensland or um, you know, somewhere in America or the UK, um, so many people had lived some version of this sense of shame and this sense of growing up feeling like you're not okay. And so that was the, that was the amazing thing. Like there was lots, there was lots of awards and accolades and, and the busy bright lights kind of side of the industry, which is cool. But that was oh. just these lots of quiet moments of like me on my phone reading this latest DM or this latest email and, and realizing that, you know, I mean, I've had hundreds and hundreds of them now, um, that I was not alone, that there were lots of other people like me, that this book has not just been like a, a commercial output. This has been something meaningful for me. And it's been meaningful to lots of other people out there in the world, especially gay and bisexual men, but not just them, you know, like lots of people of any age, you know, gender, sexuality can relate to this story. So that was probably the coolest part. And I was overwhelmed by it for the first little while, for sure. I, I just, I felt so moved that I had mm. done something that helped other people process their trauma and their life. Mm. Now, the success of the book has been such that the screen rights to Invisible Boys has actually been sold. What, what, what would be your idea and how would you go about translating a, a story like this for the screen? I, I have to be... I have to be circumspect when I talk about the TV show because it's in development yeah. at the moment. So it's super exciting. Yeah, yeah. But, um, we won't reveal anything just yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm, but I'm really glad that I, it was optioned by Nick Verso, who um, has directed a number of really great shows uh, for the ABC, including 
uh, Nowhere Boys, Crazy Fun Park, which just came out this year. Um, and now it's in development uh, with Nick and with Tanya Chambers as the producer. Um, and, and they're just, you know, when you found the right people who really understand your work. Um, mm. So that that's, I think that's what's special for me is that they understand the work and, and what it is at its core. You know, it's this book about uh, boys, it's gritty, it's, it's, it doesn't shy away, it's raw. And they really want to honor that in making that. So uh, I feel like I've lucked out. So the latest book uh, is The Brink. Can you tell me about this one, how this came about? Yeah, The Brink is um, a locked room kind of thriller, except there's no room, mm. it's an island. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this is about a group of high school leavers who head out you know, on their leavers week trip or schoolies week as it's known over East. Um, and they're expecting you know, the best week of their lives and it becomes the worst uh, because a body drops dead in the middle of the week. Um, and this death has massive consequences for the whole group. So you have uh, teenagers who are uh, dealing with all kinds of things. So you've got Leonardo dealing with panic disorder, Kaya, who's a perfectionist, Mason, who's in love with his best mate. They're already struggling. And then when this body drops, it's like this catalyst for all of them facing their fears and facing who they really are. Um, so the brink has been out about eight months, I think now it's been, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, doing really amazing things. Just one, um, 2023 young adult book of the year at the uh australian booksellers indie uh, indie booksellers awards it's called the indies um it's been shortlisted for a couple other prizes as well which is pretty exciting so uh it's really cool to see that one um you know hit the world and it's a little bit it's a fast-paced one it's a thriller um it's a little bit um you know i wrote it for a long time so i was working on this during the fantasy novel and then i put it aside then i wrote it after invisible boys and put it aside again so it's a book that took a very long time. It took me about eight and a half years, to be honest, to, to yeah, right. come on from start to finish. Um, so it's really satisfying to finally get it out into the world. Hmm. You know, it, it's decidedly kind of different. Uh, there, there are similarities to Invisible Boys with, you know, the themes of identity, but it's, it's a different novel. How did you go about, you know, stepping into this mind space and creating this narrative? Yeah, the, the scary thing with the second book, I mean, there's this whole second book syndrome, it's called, hmm. where, you know, writers if you have a hit for a first book everyone's like cool so how are you going to do that bigger and better next time um and it can become paralyzing for a lot of authors and i was certainly terrified uh but i had to keep coming back to the sense of what worked the first time and what worked the first time was uh going into a book with no sacred cows with with no sense that there was anything i wasn't allowed to say and so i had to Mm. wander into these three teenagers voices and go whatever I want to say is valid, even if it's rough around the edges, even if uh, it's going to change the way that publishers or people in the media or my family or my friends or my readers see me, because, uh, you know, everyone knows it's so personal, um, you know, I have to throw that aside. So I'm just going to have to write and be terrified, but I need to write from that same place. Otherwise, I'm not going to write a good book. So it was really about leaning into the fear and just doing it anyway. I know uh, I, I, won't, I won't hold you for too much longer as we are coming to the end here. How did I get here? But a couple uh, questions we like to ask everyone here on the show. The first, um, I want to kind of frame with the author, author mindset. You know, what advice would you have for other authors out there? Yeah, if you're starting out as an author, the thing that changed the game for me completely was 2014 or whatever it was when I kind of went, I have to actually do this or it's never going to happen. So, and Mm. up until that point, I had been that writer going, I'm going to write a book one day. I'm going to be a novelist. 
and you know you're making notes all the time and you're drawing maps all the time and you're doing character profiles all the time but you're not actually sitting there and doing the writing so my advice to authors is uh from a creative sense is get there start writing a really horrible first draft it's allowed to be rubbish it, the words will be not good but you have to get a first draft down in order to write a good second draft so uh what stephen king would describe as um the first draft you're just telling yourself the story and the second draft is where you kind of recraft it for the reader um so that is the most useful creative advice i can give is to start writing badly and then the second thing is probably from a more um hustle mindset but it works is that you have to treat yourself as a business if you're an artist um it, it it's not enough to kind of go okay well uh, at some point when i have some time i'll i'll do some writing no you're a business like you have to rock up on monday and you've got to work from nine till five and or whatever time you have you know in your calendar but you have to start putting in chunks of time in your calendar whether it's four hours a week whether it's 40 hours a week you have to start allocating time committing to it putting your butt in the chair and doing the work um that is the only way to make this your career and actually make it pay off so start being a business from the beginning Mm. And finally, a, a hypothetical we pose to everyone here on the show, you know, your 15 year old self is sitting in front of you. What advice are you giving young Holden? Oh, um, be yourself. Like that's just the biggest one, like just from a, just everything perspective, like just be yourself and you'll be fine. Um, but I think, I think I'm going to use my motto again, because it, it works, you know, fortune favors the bold. And I want to tell him yeah. that. And I want to tell, you know, if, if there's teenagers or, or young adults or people of any age listening, um, you know, fortune favors the bold, be bold. If you have a bold dream, it, it, just because you have a whole bunch of people around you telling you it's not going to work or that it's worthless or whatever, if you have fun doing it, if it makes you happy, just go do it. And there is every chance that if you work hard enough, there is a chance you'll make it. So yeah, that's my advice. Can't say it any better than that. That is How Did I Get Here for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Holden. You can find us, student underscore edge on Instagram, student edge on TikTok, search us up student edge or how did I get here on YouTube and head to studentedge.org for all our articles, podcast deals, competitions, career tips, education advice and much, much more. Holden, thank you so much for joining me today. Charlie, thanks for having me back.